Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John O'Leary is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends. I am John O'Leary, and I am so thrilled that you're here joining me in this Live Inspired movement. On every Live Inspired podcast episode, I have amazing guests join me to share their story, their successes, their failures, their lessons, and their life. Yes, you will hear from profound and unforgettable, inspiring stories, but more importantly, you will take away real ideas to apply in your life. My friends, my goal is to have guests on this show that will inspire you to choose to wake up from accidental living so that you can do, you can be, you can achieve, and you can impact more through your life. Or perhaps more simply said, so that you can live inspired. Today, I am thrilled to have with us the amazing Terry Grieg. Addiction and cancer threatened her life, but grace and endurance gave it back to her. In a world where the media frequently loves to buy and sell and trade and speak in fear, Terry realizes and honors that the human soul is powered by hope and starved for inspiration. She has made it her life's work to be a pillar of hope. And let me tell you, she's doing a pretty amazing job of this. Terry is an Ironman, a triathlete, a cancer survivor. She's been sober for over 20 years, and she is a strong pillar of hope for so many, including her two grown children and wonderful husband. People want to give. They want to help. Mm -hmm. They want to be a part of your journey. And it's selfish if you don't let them. Now, I knew of Terry's courageous fight against stage four cancer and her most unlikely training regimen she continued while undergoing radiation and chemo. But after interviewing her, I realized that Terry's story is so much more multifaceted, so much more layered, and so much more applicable to each of us on our own journeys, in our own races, and in our own fights today. Get ready to go on a journey where together we'll learn the truth that life is full of good people, appearances are deceiving, belief in self matters, odds are overrated, and what Terry calls God winks. These are inspired moments in which God aligns your life in a way you never could have imagined that these God winks absolutely exist. No more delays. Let's dive into this episode as Terry shares her story to empower each one of us to live inspired. Terry, what we all know is that everyone has a story. It's just usually not the one we're telling the world. In your book, you begin with this massive moment of celebration as you're crossing the finish line in Kona. You finish the the Ironman, 140.6 miles, I believe, is the total distance. It says you're smiling and laughing and waving and crying and hugging everybody who comes into your periphery. And yet that's not where your story begins. It doesn't begin in Kona. It doesn't begin in Hawaii. It doesn't begin with a celebration. It begins in St. Louis. It's a normal upbringing. Take us back to your childhood, Terry. So I had really a typical childhood in St. Louis County. In fact, I grew up in the same parish where you grew up, um, off of Clayton and Boat Road. But 
I was the youngest of three girls, uh, 13 and 14 years younger than my two sisters. Uh, had a very, you know, happy childhood, great schools, always loved sports, and um, went on to college, and that's where my life kind of became more interesting. Yeah, interesting is a good word, because we're not sure yet what that means. Mm-hmm. My understanding, though, is you were athletic, you were bright, you were from a successful, well-to-do family. On the outside, you had everything going for you. And yet there's this inner brokenness and this challenge, these demons that you're battling that really no one who's just looking at you can even see. Right. So I I like to say um, my insides did not match my outsides. And uh, at the time when I was in college, really what it boiled down to was addiction. Hmm. And so I, I was an alcoholic and I didn't realize it at the time. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to cope. I didn't know how to feel my feelings. Um, I had, as, as well as I was brought up, I somehow came out lacking with life skills and got down to Mizzou and really just things got worse. My alcoholism just went rampant and, um, I finally had to come home and admit defeat and ask for help. So I'm assuming where the, the decision to leave Mizzou and come home as a child, I mean, you're 19, you're mm-hmm. 20 years old. Mm-hmm. How, how did your parents, how did your family take that? Well, they had seen a lot of the symptoms. I mean, I went from um, being on the dean's list the first semester at Mizzou. I graduated, you know, in the top 10 of my class at uh, in high school. At, and uh, it, within three quarters or, or semesters, I should say, I was like at a 1.8 or something, right. you know. So the symptoms and the signs were there. Um, they wanted to help me and love me and do whatever was possible. And so, you know, I think that even today, finding the right help is really the key mm-hmm. to getting healthy. And um, so it took it took a lot of years. Um, I relapsed three times over the course of about 15 years. I had different lengths of sobriety. And I am really proud, John, to say that today... Um, I celebrated 23 years of continuous sobriety uh, in March. Congratulations. Thank you. You know, I, I'm not an alcoholic, but my friends who are say that it is one of the greatest struggles, one of the greatest challenges that they could have ever imagined battling against. So 23 years of sobriety is quite an achievement. What, was there something, Terry, that, that triggered you to return to drinking? You said you relapsed two or three different times. Well, I think, you know, that's that's the million-dollar question, right? If we knew exactly what triggered us, we, we, we wouldn't have those relapses. We would be able to help so many people out there. Um, I, I still go to AA. I um, attend meetings. I have a home group. I have a sponsor. I work a program. There's the 12 steps mm-hmm. that are an outline for living. And honestly, John, it's it's done 24 hours at a time, one day at a time. I think, you know, the first time that I relapsed, I thought I was young, right. uh, you know, couldn't, uh, it was situational, that type of thing. Um, the second and the third time, it was just, uh, you know, denial by yeah. choice, overwhelming. Uh, and then really the key, I think, what, what saved me truly in the end, what's, what saved me was, was faith. So, and I want to go there too. It seems like the third time you went to a facility called Parkside. Correct. Tell me a little bit more about Parkside. I'd never heard of it before I read your book. So it was very interesting. Um, the The last time I relapsed, um, 
my husband, I, you know, said I'm finished. I had two tiny children. Um, my family said no more. I mean, it was it was the ultimate tough love. And somehow, someway, I found myself up in Chicago in this uh, re- rehab center called Parkside. And they believed that anybody could really be good for 30 days, right? And so this was a minimum of three months. Mm-hmm. And you you can't fake it for three months. You, uh, you know, your, your demons, your character defects, all those things start coming out. And it was actually uh, focused on individuals that were, um, could put the public at harm. So nurses, doctors, pilots, things like that. And it was a tremendous program. We roomed um, off campus in apartments. You had to find uh a ride to the treatment center during the day for group therapy and all that kind of uh, stuff. And it just, it made you live your life in somewhat a controlled environment, but you had to learn, it forced you to learn those life skills. And the people I met were, it was, it was amazing. Tell us, you know, I know your roommates were spectacular in their own right. You also bump into a gentleman that you remained friends with for his entire life, a fellow named Harold. Tell us about Harold. So the names were changed, just so everybody knows in the book. But Harold was actually a lineman from up in Chicago. And Harold and I had absolutely nothing in common and everything in common. And this man um, became such an important individual in my life. And he probably showed me um, really what was important. And uh, he died sober. Um, I got to go see him right before he passed. He ended up dying of um, of cancer, of a throat cancer and a stroke. And he, he couldn't talk. He was intubated. But he found everything that he was looking for before he died. And it was it was um, one of my most cherished friendships I'd ever I'd ever have. He'd show up in St. Louis on his motorcycle coming back from Sturgis. Uh, and my kids were young at the time, you know, maybe eight and four and um and he he it just he'd sit on our back patio and I he was so uncommon looking for the area <laughs> that I live in this long gray hair and mustache and black leather and his big Harley and I I'd pray I'd beat him there so nobody would you know call the police or something right and just to put it in context my friends you know Terry is wearing tennis whites and yes. playing golf and and wealthy neighborhood and here's this gentleman showing up in a Harley looking seemingly on the outside disheveled. But inside, he's finally mm. got it put together. He's figured it out, which is a, a real blessing. Terry, about halfway through Parkside, you make a trip that's going to change your life up to Lake Geneva. Yes. Tell us about that trip. What, what happens and how did it change you? Well, um, in, in the 12 Steps, it talks about a spiritual awakening. And that day on that trip, I was with a friend named Nan, and we were able to you know, travel on the weekend. And I had never been to Lake Geneva, and it is spectacular up there. And John, it's hard for me to explain, but I had this clarity that happened to me on that trip, and it was it was an awakening, and it allowed me to really understand that everything in my life was going to be okay, everything. And I wish today, you know, I call it grace. Mm -hmm. Um, I I wish I wish today that I could give that to everybody. Even my kids, I mean, I'm like, if I could just put that moment of clarity, that grace, that contentment, um, that love that that you just feel in a box and could that would that would be just amazing. But you can't. 
So that was a huge, huge turning point for me. I just, I was able to, to move on. I think that, that was the key to, to my living every day now. For those of us listening who have had friends who have uh, been through recovery processes and they come back, I think the more frequently they come back from the recovery, the, the longer it takes for us to believe that they've actually recovered. Yes. So I'm just curious, when you come back from Parkside, you've left your husband, you left him, you were a drunk, you come back three months later, you say you're changed. How long does it take Dave before he uncrosses his arms and really opens up to his wife returning? Well, they have what's called family week there. So the first um, t- family week, my my parents and my sisters came, and they started to notice a change. Um, by the end, uh, about t- two weeks before I was to come home, Dave came up for family week. And so we did a lot of um, intensive one-on-one in therapy, and he saw the change. He heard it in my voice. He saw it in my actions. He is a very um, faith faithful man. Um I, I just can't describe, I think when you, you know, when you love somebody that much, you, you, I, I, I don't, I don't, you'd have to kind of ask him that, but mm-hmm. I think he, he must have known in his heart. You can he, tell. I, yeah, he could tell. I can't, I can't really, t- you know, tell you, but I think you can see it in the person. Right. You can see it in their eyes. You can feel it. Because let me tell you, when I left, when I got on that airplane and went to, to Chicago, I, I never I didn't know if he'd ever speak to me again. I didn't know if I would ever be able to see my children again, um, who are grown now. They're 27 and 23. And uh, so, it, 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 well, to say the least, it was a miracle. You met Dave in high school yeah. at a, a cotillion or a little Florida Lee type event. From what I understand, Terry, he's your first dance. Is that correct? Uh well, not totally. <laughs> <laughs> right. Dave, turn this off. We're going to go somewhere you weren't expecting today. Uh, but I was, it was, yeah, it was, we were juniors in high school and um, that was, that was our first dance together and we've been, pun intended, dancing ever That's since. That's right. Well, I'm glad you've been dancing ever since. You moved from dancing to the treadmill. You spent, uh, from what I understand, Terry, years kind of running but nothing competitively nothing crazy one two maybe three miles and then a family member says that she's going to run a half marathon and invite you to run with her actually it was a full marathon it was uh the chicago marathon 2002 and one of my nieces came to me and said she was going to go run you know this marathon that takes place in october it was kind of before the big marathon craze was going but i am you know, stubborn and competitive. And I just said, well, if you're going to do it, I'm going to do it and I'm going to do it faster. And that's how, that's how the endurance sports uh, started for me. So take us through it. You're a a typical mom raising kids, Mm -hmm. married, working, working, doing life. You start training. How challenging was it for me to go from a couple miles here and there to training competitively for the Chicago Marathon? So it was, I wouldn't call it training competitively, but it was training to finish. Um, She and I bought a book uh, and followed the program and she was already on like maybe week 10 of the program, which was about a 10 mile run. So I went out uh, the next day and went down to St. Luke's and ran a quarter mile track. I ran 10 miles in like 90 degree weather. And I thought, okay, I know I can do this. That was, and we started training from there. And it was, it was, you know, it was just amazing. 
I, I and then I got hooked. I thought I, I call it my every two year plan. Mm-hmm. So then I did another one in two thousand and four, and then in two thousand and six, I decided I was could tell uh, teach other people, bring other people along on this journey, and took a group of women out to Vegas. And uh, we ran kind of before it was you would run for a charity. We ran for our friend who had MS. Most of my girlfriends did the half marathon. I did the full. And um, and I qualified for Boston. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of then that rolled right into the triathlon career. So, Take us through that. So you run Boston. How do, how do you end up going from 26.2 into this decision that you indeed can do an a triathlete, a triathlon. So I was training for Boston running on the treadmill in the winter, uh, December, and the Ironman NBC program comes on TV, the, the world championship held in Kona, Hawaii. And, the, and it's on every year. It's about an hour and a half or two hour program. And they follow the uh, pro athletes and, and some age groupers that have inspirational stories. Remember Dick and Rick Hoyt, mm-hmm. the father that pushes the son? They were, became famous through... Iron Man for doing that. And I was watching it, and the story that caught me that day was um, a story about a gentleman named John Blaze who had ALS and was in his early 30s. And when he got to the finish line, um, he got down and rolled across the finish line, and the tears just started flowing, and I thought, oh, one day I want to do an Iron Man. So that, that's what started me on it. And 2008, I did my first Ironman in Louisville, mm-hmm. Kentucky. Came in fifth in my age group in the fourth place. Person qualified for the world championship in Kona. And so I thought, well, I'm, I'm okay Close. at this. Maybe Close. I can do it. I was a few minutes off, you know. So I started training and went back in 2009 and um, was 10 minutes slower. Uh, did not feel very well. well had some symptoms. Had some um, bleeding. I thought it was riding on the bike too much. I had, um, uh, I thought I was a year older. I thought I was overtrained. I had injuries that wouldn't right. heal, and um, and that was the start of this new journey. Yeah. So the new journey is is the one that I probably knew best about you, Terry. Tell me uh, about the new journey, fatigue and bleeding and all these other things, and you're just chalking them up for yeah, you're overtrained or it's all these hemorrhoids maybe. Mm-hmm. And yet, eventually, there's this whisper in the back of your mind that's saying, ah, this, does, this just doesn't feel right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, actually, John, I was a nurse for 20 years. And so I knew something probably wasn't right. But part of the whole Ironman in, in, is, is the mental training, too. I call it train your brain. And, uh, and so I, was, I said, you know, after the race, um, I'll go, if my symptoms don't subside and clear, I'll go see a doctor. And that's what happened. They didn't go away. In fact, they got worse. And so two weeks after I finished that Ironman in September of 2009, I called um, my best friend's husband, who was a gastroenterologist. And a couple of days later, I had a colonoscopy. Mm-hmm. And with my sister standing next to me, um, the doctor walked in and said, we didn't get very far into the procedure. And there was a, a huge tumor. Hmm. What's it like, Terry, when you are in the the waiting room with a friend, a family member, thinking that life is going to be back to normal here in a moment. We'll swing by the drive-thru or whatever it is you do in life. And then you get the diagnosis that you have some form of cancer. So that original uh, thought was uh, no big deal. We'll just go in and we'll cut this out and re-anastomose and hopefully I won't have you know any complications. It won't be too far advanced. So I, I kind of figured it was just going to be a hiccup. No big deal. 
And then he said, uh, I want you to go over and get a CAT scan done. And I, you know, the mind really mm-hmm. kind of can protect you. And I, I didn't really think too much of it. But it was that night, that evening, um, when I got the phone call that it had already metastasized um, to my liver. And that's when the thought came that, um, you know, well, it was, I I envisioned my daughter on her wedding day and she would standing there. I I don't know if I saw this in a movie or what, but her her beautiful wedding dress in this full length mirror in front of her. And, and my sisters and my good friends were off to the side and they were, they were the ones telling my daughter what I would want to say to her on, on her wedding day. Um, so that was my first, you know, and, and then we laughed because everybody's like, what about your son? Like, oh. <laughs> right. So so now I think about him too. No, it, it, we, we laugh. You always have to bring a little humor to everything. Yeah, it seemed like humor was a critical part of the fight forward for you. The, the, um, the, the idea of going to bed that first night after receiving the diagnosis that you have stage four cancer, that it's metastasized to the liver, h- how do you even turn and pull up the covers and go to bed? What, what's, what's that like, Terry? Well, you don't. I mean, you do the best that you can. And the only way I can describe um, the way I felt was like my insides were like a, a snow globe on steroids. I, you just, I couldn't shut myself down, but I didn't know. Um, well, I did know I had gone on the internet and I Googled and looked at, um, uh, stage four or mm-hmm. colon cancer and stage one, two, three, it said stage four, um, five year survival rate of 6%. And so I knew, I knew that the odds were really bad and I knew if it had gone my liver um, when I was a nurse it was bad 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 mm-hmm. but uh, I had um, I went and saw an oncologist a, a few days later a couple things happened over those first 72 hours but when I met with the oncologist and the nurse practitioner um, they and I think this is so important John they gave me a sense of hope there that Mm -hmm. afternoon and that day. And when I left, I believed that I could be one of those 6%. And I just, I, in my heart, I mean, you have to believe to receive. Mm. If you don't have that hope, you don't have that faith, you don't have that belief, there's nowhere to go. And, And that's what I try and do today is to give people that hope. There's just that little glimmer, just that little seed of hope. When, Many people find out that they have stage four, they succumb to the reality that that's three months or in your case, maybe two years if you're lucky. The believe to receive, was that what triggered you to say, you know what, it may not be easy, it may be all uphill, but I am going to fight on? Well, I'll tell you what else happened. Yes, that was some of it. But <clears throat> I, it, for colon cancer, colorectal cancer, you start screening at age 50 and I was 48. So I hadn't missed a screening. My sisters, as I mentioned, are 13 and 14 years older than me. They were in their early 60s and had not had colonoscopies. So they went two weeks after me and had their colonoscopies. One had precancerous polyps, and my other sister was diagnosed with stage 3 mm. colon cancer. So right there, the decision was made. I was a very, very private person before, and the decision was made, we've got to talk about this. 
I wouldn't be in the situation if I hadn't been embarrassed, if I wouldn't have been ashamed of yes. my symptoms, if I wouldn't have been, you know, I, I, I all those things. Um, and nobody had really talked about it since Katie Couric. So uh, when when I saved my sister's life, and she'll tell you, my sister saved my life, mm-hmm. uh, that became it. I mean, that was my it, calling. I knew it right then and there to go out and talk about it and share. There, there's a touching story I heard about Kyle and Kyle's your oldest mm-hmm. boy, and you know, a typical mother son relationship I w- would imagine where maybe at, in that age for in time frame he's not feeling extraordinarily close to his mom, mm-hmm. and then the diagnosis shows up stage four. We don't know how much time we have left. How does this diagnosis and the weeks and the months that followed draw you and Kyle closer? Well, he, he, I, I I had this sense of. Um, the hardest thing to do is to tell your your kids that you have cancer, um, and so it was it was really difficult. And my son was not in town; he was out of town. Fortunately, my husband has wonderful brothers, and they were there to support him when we had to call and tell him. And he flew home, and it changed our relationship forever. I mean, it brought us closer. Uh, I think you know you don't know what you have until you might not have it, mm-hmm. and. God love him. Uh, you know, we have lots of things that we love to do together. And he it's 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 been changing. It's just been it's been phenomenal. Kyle's part of the army. Tell tell me and uh, our friends about the army. So I had gone to church and there was a message at church about uh, two ultra marathoners. I'll make this as brief as I can. And one was a woman that had nobody to help her. Another was a Marine that had everybody in his troop and the marine it was a hundred and i don't know 10 mile race and the marine gets to mile 50 and has to have uh, iv fluids the woman continues on but the marines troops the soldiers hear about the the woman that is like now on mile 70 and they come and help her mm. they're they're her support because there's only one other gentleman that would do it and they show this picture it's actually a documentary called running on the sun of these two Marines carrying this woman out of this van and she has Tevas on and blisters and no toenails and, and they encircle her and they don't physically move her forward, but they encircle her all the way to the finish line. And she turns around after she breaks that tape and she looks at those soldiers, those troops. And she said, I couldn't have done it without all of you. And I woke up that night and I realized that this cancer was way bigger than me that, you know, here I was an Iron Man, badass, tough, German, all these things, and that there was no way I was going to be able to take this cancer on my own. So I put it out there and said, hey, um, who wants to join my army? And it just went crazy from there to having, you know, prayer warriors, to mess hall tent, to my best friend was a a sniper. She'd take any bullet for me. Foot soldiers, I mean, you name it, people just, and it was their way. I'll tell you what I found out, John, that people want to give. They want to help. Mm -hmm. They want to be a part of your journey. And it's selfish if you don't let them. Right on. I think that's so true, Terry. And and, uh, the recovery. Most of us imagine you, you get the chemo, you get the radiation, you have the surgery, you come home, and you wait passively for one or two weeks until the next run of treatment. You take on this crazy approach instead of training. 
And I think the doctors and nurses expect when you say, can I go for a run? They think, yeah, maybe a half mile on the treadmill, maybe. When you get the blessing to take a run or go for a ride, uh, you know in the back of your mind what that really means. What, what, what's your what's your goal as you're going through the treatments? So I never gave up training. I was in top physical shape when I was diagnosed, and I never gave up my training. I set a goal from the day that I, a few days after I was diagnosed, to do a half Ironman a year from my diagnosis, mm-hmm. which I did. And I had never let go of that dream of doing the World Championship in Kona, Hawaii. I just knew that I wasn't going to be able to physically uh, um qualify. So I sent my story in to Iron Man. Uh, lots of coincidences, which are not, I call them God winks. But, uh, and they chose me to be an inspirational athlete. My whole cir- kind of came full circle. I had watched John Blaze on the television. Now I was going to be that athlete, that inspirational athlete on the NBC Kona World Championship. And it was 35 members of the army came with me and um, I didn't do any of this on my own. None. I mean, it was all a team effort, the training. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was, it was, I, I, it was amazing. You are showing up with such vigor and spirit and fight that it's beginning to change. Not only other patients and families, but also the staff. Oh yeah. Share with us a, a couple stories of staff members who were impacted positively by this woman who was powered by hope. Well, we have a bike ride here uh, in September called Pedal the Cause. And so we get, I, I encouraged a ton of them to get involved with that and raise money for cancer research and start riding. Um, there's, I ask them all to go do 5Ks with me and, and all different kinds of things. There's one individual uh, sh- um, uh, that worked in the pharmacy, um, totally like a, a female Harold, okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, totally <laughs> different background than me. Her name's Nicole, and uh, she weighed three hundred and fifty-five pounds. And she met me at um, at a five k, and we walked it. And um, a year and a half later, she's one hundred and twenty pounds. Oh and um, actually, she learned how to ride a bike two weeks ago. And so it's just it, it's contagious, right? Um, and I, I just. I, I'm just myself, and I just I love I, I I just love to give the gift to anybody that's willing to you know be open to hearing about it or or trying. So so you know media frequently loves to buy and sell and trade and speak in fear. Yes, and yet I think the human soul is starved and thirsty for hope and inspiration. And Terry, that's what you provide, whether in the cancer treatment, on the race, or uh, in life beyond that's come all the way through that treatment out to Hawaii. Uh, how long had you been enduring the treatment before you were able to make it out to Hawaii in the first place? Uh, two years. Two years of treatment. Two years. And we're talking chemo and radiation and surgical procedures. Yes. Including infections. Yes. What's the lowest point during those two years? Uh, the lowest point was about three weeks, two weeks after um, I had a huge surgery, a uh, colon and liver resection. And, I think I think you know it was kind of the perfect storm physically, emotionally, spiritually. I was I was broken, and um, and I was septic, and I came through that. And then I went and I got um, some help. I went and talked to a counselor. I think that that's very important to admit and let other people know. I needed help trying to wrap my mind around all of this. Mm-hmm. I had fears. I had questions that needed a safe person to talk to, um, and. 
that that was the lowest lowest. I, I I didn't even have I don't I don't couldn't even eat. I was down to, well, let's just say it wasn't wasn't pretty. Did you think you were dying? No, I I don't really. I didn't think I was dying, but I didn't know. I, I mean. I, you know, I knew I was dying in the sense that we're we're all going to die, right? I mean, every that's what I when I kind of get into this, like, oh my god, I'm still undergoing treatment, I'm still fighting, I'm mm-hmm. still in the battle. I think you know what? There is no guarantee anybody's going to get home from the grocery store this afternoon, and I just level the playing field. That's what I call it, and it brings me right back into you're no different than anybody else. I mean, that's just the way it is. So I, you know, I, I just knew that I was in a deep, deep hole and I was, I was afraid. Well, you climb out of that deep hole with the army, with friends, with a little bit of faith, with a lot of fight. You eventually hop onto a flight, literally land in the, uh, in Hawaii. Terry, for you after the diagnosis and stage four, all the things you went through, what is it like to get off a plane in Hawaii and know that you're a couple days away from running the Ironman? Well, so the Ironman was my ultimate dream come true. Uh, and so I, you know, I just pinched myself. I was so excited. I live usually, John, really a, a life, I call it a, an attitude of gratitude. And, and I'm pretty much in that space most of the time. And I mean, this was an experience that I was so grateful to have the opportunity. So I knew that all these people were coming. I knew that the only thing I wanted to do to accomplish was to cross that finish line in the time allowed, which is 17 hours. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I wanted to enjoy the day and take it all in. And that's what I did. So, you know, the, the interview is a little... Uh too concise to take us all the way through 17 hours of racing mm-hmm. let's move right toward the finish line um, it's dark it's quiet and yet in the distance you start to see a glimmer of light and a little bit of noise take take me from there so there's nothing um, I, there's nothing more exciting seriously maybe you know the Super Bowl when the Rams stop the uh titans you know but the 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 finish line of the world championship iron man is the energy is crazy unbelievable before you tell us about the energy maybe you should back into telling us what is an iron man okay thank you (laughs) so an iron man is a triathlon and uh, there's four kind of standard distances and iron man being the longest it's a 2.4 mile open water swim a 112-mile bike, and then a marathon, 26.2-mile run. So um, that was my my dream was to do the world championship. And so when I, I got the email saying, we've chosen you as an inspirational athlete, that was crazy and, you know, trained. And the the day in October came, and, and I'm on mile 139. You know, uh, you can hear the screaming, you can hear Mike Riley, the announcer. Mm -hmm. And um, I knew my family was, my immediate family was going to be at the finish line. And it's really funny, John, because if you've ever watched and looked at pictures of people finishing marathons or there's, they pose, right? They come up with some like crazy. And so part of the time I'm thinking, wow, what am I going to do when I cross (laughs) that line? Like, you know, I got to, you, stress, right. you know, so this is thinking in my mind, and I'm going to tell you what I came down. Some reason I ended up going down the left side, 
of the shoot, the finishing shoot, and my four nieces and my great nephew were there off to the side. So I stopped. And the only way I can describe it is the ugly cry. We all, and everybody in the section knew what was happening. That was probably not part of your plan. It was not part of the plan. And then um, I hugged them and I, and I went on down and um, I was so over, I've never been, except for when I delivered my kids and my wedding day, I've never been so overwhelmed with emotion. And if you get a chance to watch the video, you can feel it and you can see it. And my mom, my husband, and my two kids were there. And um, I, I really, I just can't put into words the feeling. You've crossed that finish line, Terry, and yet I know for you the race continues. Mm-hmm. Tell us what you're up to now. So today um, I have a charity called Powered by Hope. And hope is how ordinary people endure. And I believe that when you hear the words, you have cancer, you've entered the greatest race of your life. And so we go into, I have ambassadors of hope. We go to treatment centers, uh, infusion centers, radiation centers here locally, and we present medals of hope for everybody with any type of cancer. And we have a little ceremony and um, we want people to know that no one fights alone. And then we follow that up with a meetup group and some other support things. We have coins of courage for, mm-hmm. for the cancer patients and for the caregivers. And that way, it's kind of like an AA. You have a 12-step coin that you carry with you so that they can carry that coin with them um, at all times. And we're looking, um, now we're expanding regionally. And we've come up with the Powered by Hope Champion Award, which goes out to healthcare workers that are um, fulfilling our mission of providing hope, strength, peace, to the oncology population, and they are nominated by patients, patients, families, and coworkers. Um, so, uh, we're new, we're young, we're excited about it, and um, you can go find us at poweredbyhope.org and uh, look at our wall of faces of hope. It's quite amazing. You know, you have these beautiful, uh, almost like trophies that hang around your neck. These mm-hmm. beautiful coins. Frequently in life, you get the coin, you get the medal, you get the bumper sticker after you finish the, the race. One of the most beautiful aspects, I think, of the race you are now running is these men and women, these children, get the medal on the front side of the race. That's right. T- t- tell us why you, you provide the coin and the celebration and the recognition on the front side. Uh, well, there's a few reasons. The first is a lot of times at these treatment centers, um, people ring a bell when they're finished with chemo. And now today, um, due to all the Im- improvements in the research that we have, like somebody like me, I've been undergoing treatment for seven years. It, it, it's a chronic illness for me. I will never not, um, unless they, you know, there's a miracle, which I hope. Uh, so I never got to really ring the bell. So these are, it's a way to mark their journey. And it's a way for them to know it's a symbol of hope mm-hmm. that sits right in front of them. And it's a way for them to know that they're, Nobody fights alone. So it's it's a reminder, really. Um, and, and I'll get stories all the time about how somebody's hung it up on their wall, their husband had it framed for them, or they hang it in their, uh, where they, in their bathroom where they see it every day. It just fills them up. It, it gives them that um, fortitude yes. to put one foot in front of the other one day at a time. Well, it's it's a beautiful concept, and it's changing lives. And Terry, I want to I want to shift gears mm-hmm. into what we call the Live Inspired Seven. Okay. So these are seven <laughs> questions. Quick fire, baby. Not a whole lot of thought goes into the answer. I just want you to shoot from the hip and from the heart. 
What's the best book you've ever read? Uh, your book, John O'Leary's book. She'll receive the $20 agreed upon <laughs> before we began recording on the backside of this interview. Thank you, Terry, for the plug. <laughs> You're welcome. For, so on fire. I am grateful on fire. for that. Yep. Tomorrow, Terry, you discover that your wealthy uncle has shockingly died at 103, leaving you with millions. What do you do with it? You know, I um, first of all, I take care of my family. And secondly, I would give the rest of it away to other charities. What, what, besides Powered by Hope, what's, what's one of your favorite charities? Well, Cancer Research. Um, look at Pat Summit, who passed away yeah, yesterday mm-hmm. for Alzheimer's. There, I, John, every day I'm exposed it's so, to wonderful, wonderful organizations. That's part of my, uh, it's a good thing and a bad thing. I never want to say no. Mm-hmm. There's so much good being done out there. Agreed. Terry, your house catches fire. This is an experience, by the way, the O'Leary's have had twice now. But your house catches fires. Everyone and everything that is living is already out. You have an opportunity, though, to run in and get one thing that matters most to you. What do you run into that burning house for? The Bible. You grab your Bible. You are now sitting on a bench overlooking a beautiful beach on a beautiful day, and you have an opportunity to spend a couple hours with anyone, Terry, living or dead. Who would you sit? Who would you choose to sit next to? I'd, I'd want to see my grandma again. What's her name? Ida. Tell, tell me just a little bit about oh Ida. Oh, my gosh. She was the most giving, um, strong, kind individual there is. And she died at 102, John. <laughs> she died six months short of living in three centuries. Amazing, amazing woman. Yeah, I think the gene pool passed it your way, mm-hmm. Terry. So you and I just have that conversation. What's the best advice that she or anyone else has ever passed your way? So the best advice you ever received was? The best advice I ever received was, uh, honestly, just take one day at a time. Perfect. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? Everything's going to be okay. (laughs) That's good news. And then finally, Terry, it's been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How do you want your one sentence to read? She left the world a better place. Uh, Terry Grieg, it has been such an absolute pleasure spending a little little bit of time powered by hope speaking with you uh, the the dream you have of leaving the place the world a better place is becoming a reality each day that you are part of it so we thank you for your work your faith your hope and your willingness to share it with us oh john thank you thanks for doing the same thank you for joining me today on the live inspired podcast it was such a gift to connect with terry and i hope you enjoyed our conversation in the show notes We have links to her book. My friends, do yourself a favor and order it. We have videos of her at Kona, the Iron Man, and information on her not-for-profit, Powered by Hope. My friends, if you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you, please take a few moments to rate this show and review the podcast. This is a quick way that helps get the word out. Although the show is still just launching... It's already climbing the charts and it's already touching lives, but you can help us inspire and impact even more lives. 
So rate the show, leave your comments, tell your friends, and let's create a movement of individuals living inspired. You can do it now on the podcast app on your iPhone. Simply click on the review tabs. If you haven't yet subscribed, hit that subscribe button while you're at that so you don't miss a guest, so you don't miss a conversation, so you don't miss insights on living an inspired life. If you are on other platforms or other devices, any other love you can offer in sharing this message, our message, my message, I'd appreciate it. Learn more about the Live Inspired movement at www.johnolearyinspires.com. That's www.johnolearyinspires.com. Each week you can listen in as I interview extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your story. I'm honored you tuned in this week and cannot wait until next week. So for this time and until next time, this is John O'Leary, and this is your day. Live inspired.